Welcome to Yo and Yo's podcast. With a century of experience and perspective, we unpack the latest tax, accounting, technology, financial, and advisory topics relevant to you and your business. Listen in as we analyze challenges, explore potential opportunities, and help you find ways to thrive. This is Everyday Business with Yo and Yo. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's edition of Everyday Business. My name is Pete Bender, and I'm the leader of Yo and Yo Wealth Management and a principal in our Saginaw office. Today is the first wealth management-related podcast for 2023, so happy new year to everyone. Today's topic is a discussion of the SECURE Act 2.0 and how some of the many provisions in the Act will affect financial planning for individuals and their families. As you may know, SECURE Act 2.0 is a follow-up to the original SECURE Act, which was passed about three years ago in December of 2019. While the original SECURE Act had some massively impactful provisions in it, such as eliminating the stretch IRA option for most non-spouse beneficiaries, the 2.0 version maybe doesn't have a single significant change as the original did, but there are far more provisions in this version of the Act that may have a significant impact on our clients. So we're going to touch on some of those changes in today's podcast that affect financial planning overall. And then we'll follow that up with another podcast next month that digs a little deeper specifically into the provisions that affect retirement plans, such as 401ks and 403b plans. Joining me today is Matt Cash, a certified financial planner with Advantax Planning Partners. Yonio Wealth Management partners with Advantax to provide holistic financial planning and wealth management services for our clients with a focus on tax smart investing. Welcome, Matt. Hey, Pete. How are you? I'm doing great. How's your new year starting out? So far, so good. Got a lot of big changes in the financial world, and hopefully we can set people up for success. All right. Sounds good. Let's start things off here. So, so Matt, one of the provisions of the act that probably grabbed many headlines has to do with changes in the required minimum distribution rules for IRA owners. Can you talk to our audience a little bit about what some of those changes were? Absolutely. So the big headline grabber is that the required minimum distributions, uh, the age at which you need to take one has been pushed back to age 73 for anyone who uh, has attained age 72 as of December 31st of last year. So basically, anyone who is 72 starting this year all the way through December of 2032 uh, is going to be required to take out their RMD required minimum distribution at age 73 instead of uh, what was the prior requirement of 72. The exact wording in the SECURE Act is in the case of an individual who attains age 72 after December 31st of 22 and age 73 before January 1st of 23, the applicable age is 73. Uh, The law continues to say in the case of an individual who attains age 74 after December 31st of 2032, the applicable age is 75. So essentially it's getting pushed to age 73 and then for 10 years it remains as such and that it increases to uh, 74 after you know, December of 2032. What's interesting is there's actually a mistake in the language. The second part of that language should really read in the case of an individual who attains age 74 after December 31st of 2033, 
the applicable age is 75 instead of you know what it says is 2032 as far as planning opportunities not really a lot that that this changes there are opportunities to do some Roth conversions before required minimum distribution hits you know minimize that uh, future required distribution and still you know keep that income in a lower bracket potentially this may also help to stave off higher Medicare Part B and D premiums and have, um, like I said, a few more years of those tax efficient Roth conversions. So, um, you know, someone who turned 72 this year, you know, they thought they would be required to take a, a distribution. You know, they can delay that actually for essentially another two years. So April of of the following year, April of 2024. So there's some opportunities to maybe convert to uh, Roth and have that tax-free growth uh, while you're in a lower bracket. So there's a, a couple opportunities. And, you know, if if that was relevant to your case, that's something we would cover when we do our financial planning meeting. Yeah, they, they Matt, they certainly uh, like to keep things simple, don't they? With all the different <laughs> ages and the and the uh, dates, um, I, I'm sure there's got there's going to be some clarification in some of that because there is a few gaps. And it it also appears the way it's written that in 2023 there wouldn't be any new required minimum distribution starting in that year the way the law is written. I think you just touched on that. If someone turned 72 in 2023, they really have till age 73 to start their distributions and they get to wait a year. You know, there's going to be some interesting clarifications there. Exactly. Yeah, it's none of these are um are ever easy to, you know, understand and you know, that's why you and me are employed because right. you know, a lot of times the clients you know, don't don't really know how to interpret some of these things. And that's kind of where we come in. Yep, exactly. Um, one other thing to point out, they didn't change the age uh, that you're allowed to do qualified charitable distributions from your IRA. Uh, that was set a few years back at age 70 and a half, and that has not been changed. So people are still allowed at a, at a younger age to, to transfer money directly from their IRA to a charity and avoid claiming that as as taxable income at all, which is a which is a very powerful uh, planning strategy for for some of our clients that are charitably inclined. Yeah, and I'll I'll jump right into that. So they um, they decided uh, starting in 2024 that they're going to link the qualified charitable distributions to inflation. It's been fixed at a hundred thousand uh, annual limit. For about 15 years, and so they're gonna they're gonna start linking that to inflation. Okay. Um, one thing to to note about that, and if you're not familiar with qualified charitable distributions, it's a really good way to to lower your adjusted gross income, give directly to charity, and not have to pay taxes on on distributions. And as Pete mentioned, the fact that even though even though the required distribution has has gone up to age 73. You can still do those qualified charitable distributions at age 70 and a half. There's actually a little bit more flexibility as well on how you can uh, distribute that qualified charitable distribution. There's three ways in which you can do that up to 50,000. Um, that's actually once in a lifetime. So once in your lifetime, you can take $50,000 of a QCD and distribute it to a charitable remainder unit trust, a charitable remainder annuity trust, 
or a charitable gift annuity. Um, we don't have to go into great detail about those, but this is a, a great estate planning tool to sort of get assets off of your, your estate and receive the uh, qualified charitable deduction and also potentially you know, keep some income or disbursements for your beneficiaries. Now, 50,000 is not a lot of money to be setting up charitable remainder annuity trust just for that purpose you're probably going to end up you know paying an attorney uh, more than than uh, it's worth for doing that but a charitable gift annuity might make sense because you're basically giving that directly to charity and then collecting an annuity uh, from that charity so um, that might be the best option there. And again, that's once in a lifetime. So it's not like the QCD where you can do it every every year. Not a lot of people are going to necessarily take advantage of that just because of the amount and the reasoning for taking those um, disbursements. But it's something to, to note anyway. Another big provision within the Secure 2.0 is the reduction in the penalty for a missed required minimum distribution. Before, if you failed to take your required distribution, and I've seen it happen, the penalty was 50% of the amount, uh, which is obviously a hefty chunk. They've cut that in half to 25%. And further, if you rectify the shortfall within what they call a correction window, they further reduce the penalty to only 10%. The correction window is uh, threefold. It's the first of any of these three bullets. When the notice of deficiency is mailed to the taxpayer, so in other words, when the IRS you know, realizes you missed it, um, when the tax is assessed by the IRS or the last day of the second tax year after the tax is imposed. So it's the earlier of those when that correction window is you know, within your 10% window. Pete, you may have an anecdote about this. I've seen clients who have missed and, and written letters and not paid any penalties. Do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, we've we've had pretty good luck over the years, especially you know in a one time instance where somebody missed missed the RMD. Maybe it was the first year and they didn't didn't realize it, or maybe it was due to a death or just a confusing situation. A lot of times when we file the return, we'll request that abatement of the of the fifty percent penalty, and we have pretty good success in in avoiding it. Of course, there's no guarantees on that. And uh, with some of these other rules in place, they might take a, a harder stand on that. Like you said, if, if you correct it, and usually it's caught within that correction period, because it's when you do the taxes the next year and you realize it didn't come out, if you can correct it within that time, it's just a 10% penalty. So it's not quite as, as um, cumbersome to the clients. Matt, there was also some interesting provisions regarding options now available for surviving beneficiaries of retirement accounts. We know there was in the original SECURE Act, um, they eliminated the stretch IRAs, but there was some changes for surviving beneficiaries. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So under existing law, when a surviving spouse inherits a retirement account from a deceased spouse, they have a variety of options at their disposal that are not available to any other beneficiary. And that's rolling the decedent's IRA into their own, electing to treat the IRA as their own, and remaining a beneficiary of the decedent's IRA, but with special treatment. Starting in 2024, uh, Secure Act 2.0 will extend the list of spouse beneficiary-only options further 
by introducing the ability to elect to be treated as the deceased spouse. And so making an election would provide the following benefits. Your RMDs for the surviving spouse would be delayed until the deceased spouse would have reached the age at which the RMDs began. And then once RMDs are necessary, in other words, once the the year the year of the decedent would have turned RMD age, the surviving spouse will calculate the RMD using the uniform life table used by account owners rather than the single lifetime table that applies to beneficiaries. And if the surviving spouse dies before RMDs begin, the surviving spouse's beneficiaries will be treated as though they were the original beneficiaries of the account. So, you know, there's a lot, again, involved in that um, when you deal with legislation. Uh, but, you know, the main takeaway is that, you know, someone who is is younger um, would, uh, if they were to pass and, you know, give their IRA essentially to their their older spouse, the older spouse could treat that IRA as if they were, you know, still the decedent. It sounds kind of weird, but uh, basically yeah. it would allow the survivor to delay uh, taking withdrawals from that account by treating the account as if it were the decedent's age. And so that just basically allows for potentially lowered income uh, down the road and lower required minimum distributions. Furthermore, when that account or if the decedent were to turn, you know, 73, 10 years down the road, then the uh, beneficiary could treat it as if the client were still alive. In other words, they could take the RMDs using that table for for the uh, 73 year old instead of potentially the older age. And this basically would allow you to to stretch out the distributions over a longer period of time because you know the age is going to be um, one factor in in um, depleting the account. And and the older you are, the more you're going to have to take out. So. Uh, this is a benefit for uh, someone who loses a spouse who's uh, younger than them. And, um, you know, again, it's not a scenario that we're going to necessarily see all the time, um, but it is nice to know that uh, that that's available if it if it comes into play within your situation. Yeah, exactly. It gives you some, again, planning opportunities and um, ways to defer income down the road or maybe to next uh, to other generations as well as you mentioned as it said in the law if the uh, required minimum distributions never come to fruition those beneficiaries will be treated as if they were the original beneficiaries on the account you know there's going to be uh, better options for them as far as being able to distribute the assets over time so Pete uh, I'm going to turn the tables a little bit I know uh, I've covered a lot but I want to uh get your insight onto some of the other changes within Secure 2.0. Um, and one of those changes is related to retirement plan accounts and some of the Roth options uh, as far as the employer and catch-up contributions, and then uh, the new RMD roles surrounding uh, plan accounts. You're right, Matt. There was a lot in, in this act that relates to Roth uh, IRAs. And, and Roth retirement accounts, like in a 401k or 403b. So it's kind of a switch. You know, there was a lot of talk that um, since the Roth's been instituted years back, that some of the other proposed 
tax acts were eliminating Roths and, and not allowing people to, to defer, you know, avoid paying uh, tax on all those earnings for a number of years and that some of those things were eliminated, but none of that came to fruition in this act. And in fact, really what it does is it allows more options for people to fund various types of Roth accounts and again, to deferred paying income, avoid paying income in effect on, on the earnings on those Roths. So one of the first things was the elimination of required minimum distribution for Roth accounts that were still in an employer-sponsored plan, such as a 401k. So just to step back with a Roth IRA, you, you don't have required minimum distribution. So when you hit age 72 or now 73 or 75, you don't have to take money out of a Roth. However, if you had money in a Roth 401k, that you funded through your employer when you hit that RMD age. Under the old laws, you had to start taking that money out. New laws say no RMDs for Roth whatsoever. So um, not a huge change. You know, before you would be able to roll that that Roth 401k into a traditional Roth or a regular Roth IRA and avoid the RMD. Now you don't have to go uh, take that extra step. You can just avoid paying taking the RMD. Um, on that certain account. Um, another change was that they're going to allow going forward Roth contributions to simple IRAs and SEP IRAs. Before it was just traditional deductible contributions to those accounts. Now, if the plan is set up, this is starting in 2023, an employer can fund Roth contributions, let's say to a SEP IRA. Now the taxpayer, of course, will have to include that in their taxable income for the year. But the benefit is once that money's in there, it can grow tax-free forever and you never pay tax on any of the earnings. Um, so again, it just makes things a little bit easier there. Um, another change was that uh, now employers can make elections in their retirement plans, their employer-sponsored retirement plans to make matching or non-elective contributions to employee-designated Roth accounts. So again, previously, if a company did a match in a 401k or a profit sharing, that was always tax deductible, not included in taxable income for the employee. And um, and then, of course, it grew tax-free and you paid tax on it when you took it out. Now they'll be able to de designate those as Roth contributions. The employee will have to pay tax on that income up front, but then they'll avoid paying tax later on. Lots of changes there. Yeah. And one thing I wanted to add on to that is that there is a provision for high wage earners as it relates to catch up contributions within a 401k, 403b, or a governmental 457b plan. And basically what that states is anyone who has wages in excess of 145,000 has to uh, contribute to the Roth. Um, and that basically, is, as Pete mentioned earlier, is going to allow for you know some of these provisions to be paid for within the plan by by them collecting the uh, the tax revenue. What's interesting to note is that this doesn't apply to self-employed individuals. And the reason for that is, you know, when you do a self-employment uh, or a self-employed return, you're you typically don't know what the the income is going to be necessarily until. Um, you know, well into the next year, whereas determining someone's wages from a prior year is is pretty straightforward. So, um, 
you know, so that's why the self-employed individual will still be allowed to do pre-tax catch-up contributions. Uh, and it's only for, for wages where that income limit's going to be uh, put into place. What's also interesting to note is that, well, a couple things. One is if you you switch jobs throughout the year, um, you know, so you make a hundred thousand in one role and a hundred thousand in uh, your new role for the year, they only look at your current employer and and the income from that. So theoretically, if you switch jobs mid-year, you could still do a uh, pre-tax contribution for a catch-up, um, even if your your total was over one hundred forty-five thousand. Again, a, a pretty nuanced thing, but it's interesting to point out, you know, some of these things that maybe weren't necessarily thought of um, in, in the time of the draft. The other thing is, if you make over 145000 and your plan doesn't include a Roth option, uh, no one within the plan is going to be allowed to make catch-up contributions, regardless of any wages. So, uh, really, what that's doing is forcing most companies to uh, offer a Roth component, and mm. again, that's just going to be more tax revenue on the front end to the government. So, um, you know, you've got these high wage earners, executives who aren't able to make a catch-up contribution. Uh, and same with any other employee, there's going to be, um, you know, some frustration there. And I think that'll force a lot of plans to offer a, a Roth component. Yeah, that's a very interesting provision. And again, just kind of that overall theme of looks like they're trying to uh, generate some tax revenue now up front with and, and kicking the can down the road that uh, people avoid paying tax later. So it's an interesting um, theme that we're seeing in these provisions. Yeah. No doubt. I mean, the the national de deficit is, uh, you know, thirty one trillion dollars. And I think, uh, you know, there's there's some need to to start chipping away at that. Oh. Um, I wanted to ask you, too, about uh, simple IRAs and SEP IRAs, if there's anything in Secure 2.0 that that covers any of those. Um, the main thing there was just the 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 Roth contributions will now be allowed. So employer can can do contributions that are taxable to the employee and and fund the account for them. And then that money can grow tax free and never pay tax. So that's that's the biggest change there. Uh, there's some other changes regarding the uh, catch up contributions, which we'll we'll touch on a little bit. Great. So um, I know when I meet with clients, I met with one today, they want to start up a 529 for their child, but they're not sure that their child will go to to college or use it in um, private school. You know, the child is two years old, but, you know, it sounds like maybe there's some things in Secure 2.0 that kind of tackles that concern that parents have. Hey, what if I don't ever use the 529? What can I do with it? Can you talk about about that? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely an incentive here, some changes to encourage more people to put money in 529s by making them more flexible. So beginning in 2024, certain individuals, if they qualify, will be allowed to move money they had in the 529 plan directly into a Roth IRA for the 529 beneficiary. So that's, uh, again, a really interesting provision. There's some definite um, conditions that must be met. Um, the Roth that they're funding has to be in the name of the beneficiary of the 529 plan. And we'll talk on that in a little bit. 
Um, secondly, the 529 plan must have been maintained for at least 15 years or more. Okay, so you can't set up a 529 and then immediately move it to the Roth. It's got to be around for a while. Um, any contributions to that 529 within the last five years of when you want to do the, the rollover are ineligible for rollover. So again, you can't fund it and immediately switch it to the Roth. Um, that the amount that can be transferred in any one year um, equates to the annual limit of how much could be funded into an IRA contribution for that beneficiary, less any contributions that they already made. So for instance, um, let's say you have a, a, a 529 set up for your son. Uh, you, you did it when he was first born and now he's age 17 and working. And um, you don't think he's going to use it all for um, college, you could move up to $6,000, the current limit, to an IRA, um, provided he's working, provided he has earned income. But if he makes contributions on his own, let's say he put $2,000 in the IRA, you can only fund the balance of $4,000 to get him to the $6,000 for the year. So um, again, it has to be an eligible a, a truly an IRA contribution and that the beneficiary has to have earned income and it's limited to the normal normal limits. And then the final restriction is that the maximum amount that can be moved from 529 to any Roth during an individual's lifetime is 35,000. So it's not unlimited. So obviously that, that leads to a lot of uh, questions. There's some unanswered questions and provisions. The biggest question is, is that 15 year restriction based on the account being in existence or the beneficiary. So let's say I put money in for my oldest child. Um, it's been around for 15 years and he's getting closer to college and realized that he's not gonna go to college. Can I switch it to my second oldest child and um, potentially then move money into their Roth IRA? So it looks like the way they're interpreting at this point that you can do that, that it's based on the account being established and not the beneficiary, um, but that needs to be defined then. Um, the other thing is, you know, would this allow for me? Uh, none of my kids end up going to college. Can I switch that Roth IRA and make myself as the beneficiary and then, and then immediately start funding, uh, moving money to my Roth IRA if I have earned income? Um, so again, that's not necessarily specified within the, the act at this point. Um, so we'll have to wait and see if that that opportunity comes along. Mm -hmm. um, it, it does certainly offer some some opportunities, um, you know, for individuals who currently their income is too high, so they can't fund a, a Roth IRA. They could use the 529. Uh, they don't have to have a, a, a good reason, but they certainly could fund a Roth through that method where normally they couldn't. And then also just, uh, you know, a long term planning. So, um, you know, maybe grandparents, uh, a new grandbaby is born at age one. They start uh, putting money into that 529 account for the child at age one. Um, 15 years later, when they're 16, uh, the child starts working, the grandson or granddaughter starts working, they could start moving that into a Roth for them. You think of the compounding of that money, you know, they're maxed at putting 35,000 of contributions, but if they put that 35,000 in, um, when the child's at that age, that could grow to, you know, significant dollars by the time they hit retirement age. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's almost better than a Roth too, because you get that state tax deduction on the 
529 contribution, whereas a, a regular Roth contribution, you don't get any deduction. Yeah, there is a small uh, contribution uh, limit, at least in Michigan, um, for certain 529 plans if it's a Michigan-sponsored plan. So um, one other change with the IRAs, not a, not a big deal. The IRA con uh, catch-up contributions um, are now going to be subject to an annual cost of living adjustment starting in 2024. Um, that catch-up has been stuck at $1,000 since 2006 because it was only bumped every few years when they changed the law. Now it's going to go minimum of $100 increments, but every year there's going to be adjustment depending on the cost of living um, adjustment. And then one final thing, um, for starting in 2025, participants who are age 60 to 63 will be able to fund more catch-up contributions into their retirement plans. This applies to 401ks, 403bs, simple IRAs. I won't get into the details, but um, they are going to allow to be fund fund more into that. I think the theme partly is that there's some things that need clarification as well, and yeah. maybe that uh, maybe Congress will release an addendum or an amendment to some of these things to to clarify some yep. of the fogginess. Yep, that's that's usually the case. So, so I think we've covered enough for today. Enough dates and numbers and things. So, hopefully, the podcast uh, will give our listeners a taste of some of the changes brought on by the act and the potential planning opportunities that might arise from it. We know there are a lot of complexities, like we talked about, and lots of different dates. But the benefit is that it'll really give us at at Yo and Yo and at Vantax as CPAs and financial planners. It just gives us opportunities to provide valuable tax smart planning and investment opportunities to to you our clients so if you have any questions on any of these topics or would like to learn more about our planning process please feel to reach out to matt or myself or your yo and yo cpa and we'd be happy to discuss it with you further and then you can always find out more information from our website at yo and yo.com so thanks matt anything else to add no thanks pete uh like you mentioned it's important that if you need a financial plan, ne nearing retirement, any major life changes that uh, you, you meet with your CPA and we can get uh, a financial plan built and maybe include some of these uh, changes within that plan as well. Absolutely. Great point. So thanks everybody for joining and have a great day. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Yo and Yo's Everyday Business Podcast. Yo and Yo's podcast can be listened to on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and of course our website. Please subscribe, rate, and review. For more business insights, visit our resource center at yoandyo.com and be sure to subscribe to our newsletters. We'll talk to you next time on Yo and Yo's Everyday Business Podcast. The information provided in this podcast is believed to be valid and accurate on the date it is first published. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the podcast reflect the views of the speakers. This podcast does not constitute tax, accounting, legal, or other business advice or an advisor-client relationship. Before making any decision or taking action, you should consult with a professional regarding your specific circumstances. Investment advisory services are offered through Advantax Planning Partners. Commission-based securities products are offered through Avantax Investment Services, member FINRA SPIC. 
Insurance services offered through licensed agents of Avantax Planning Partners, 3200 Olympus Road, Suite 100, Dallas, Texas, 75019. The Avantax entities are independent of and unrelated to Yo and Yo Wealth Management. Peter Bender is an Advantax registered representative. Not all financial professionals are licensed to offer all products or services. Financial planning and investment advisory services require separate licenses. Avantax affiliated advisors may only conduct business with residents of states for which they are properly registered. Please note that not all of the investments and services mentioned are available in every state. This material is for informational purposes only. It is not intended as investment, tax, or other advice or an offer or solicitation for the purchase or sale of any financial instrument. Indices are unmanaged, represent past performance, do not incur fees or expenses, and cannot be invested into directly. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Consult with your financial, tax, or other appropriate advisors on all matters pertaining to financial accounting or tax obligations and requirements.